Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fish and Game Podcast. you got your host here. Uh, Justin Townsend, and uh, today we have a very special episode. We've got a, another guest with us, and uh, this is also our first episode from sunny, sunny Colorado. So uh, I, I made the big leap from the Florida Keys up to Colorado now, and uh, so we're working on mountain time, which is uh, very interesting for the scheduling piece, but uh, excited nonetheless for the, the fall season and the things to come. So... Uh, with that, I want to go through a bit of, of our news. Um, so big news is the move for me, uh, right before we moved, literally the week before I was up in, uh, Missoula, Montana at the BHA rendezvous. So happy to announce that, uh, Adam Steele and I took uh, third place in the wild food competition. Uh, we, you know, we would have loved first place, but it was a pretty awesome, uh, competition. We made some jerk alligator with a mango, uh, cream sauce and also a bunch of wild foraged greens and um, man what else do we do oh fried green tomatoes with uh, the crust we used some uh, plantain some dried plantain which we crumbled up to make a nice little crust on the tomatoes we were challenged and tasked to create a meal that represented uh, our state which would have been Florida at the time uh, which I think we did pretty successfully. So in the judging, we had uh, Hank Shaw was there, um, as well as Clay Newcomb. And uh, let's see, Rachel from Elevated Wild was there and a, and a couple other folks as well. Uh, really excited to have them judging us. And they gave us some great feedback both before and after the show. Uh, so it was good good to see that happen. The, the winners ended up taking it uh I believe they were from Minnesota and made a cool duck and wild rice dish with some foraged mushrooms, and they did a lot of entertaining and telling stories, and I think that got the competitive edge on us. But, uh, Colin, what, what information or new stuff you got for us going on? Uh, hey, everybody. It's Colin. Um, I think it's been a couple episodes since I've been on. But uh, I got two bits of info um, or updates, I guess you could call them. Put in for my Oregon tags. I ended up getting a uh, controlled hunt deer tag, which is, I mean, pretty much a guarantee. Uh, and then I ended up striking out again on elk tags. Uh, tried to game the system. Uh, I wouldn't call it gaming. I tried to strategize. Uh, and then <laughs> one of the results from this year's uh, tag application season, I think they had like a 15% 
increase in tag applications across Oregon. Um, so the unit that I was trying to go after had 7,000 more tags applied for than last year. Uh, and that kind of that kind of shoved me out, um, kind of ruined my strategy that I was going for. But I still got a general elk tag, so I'll be looking for, forward to those uh, four days in November coming up. And then I also uh, reached out to a local farm here for... Uh, the possibility of hunting nutria on there. Uh, I know I've seen them around there. I've gone duck hunting on there, and they said they were open to it. Uh, so myself and a guy I know from work, we're probably just going to go and walk around some of the, the cowless pastures they have there and look for nutria. Uh, I just got two furs back from some that we got in November, and they came out awesome. So I'm kind of I'm eager to get some more and maybe make a hat or some gloves out of them or something. I would say the real question is, are you making a nutria hat? Oh, well, yeah, that's without question. Nutri hat is definitely in the cards. Uh, and then also, you know, see what I can make with them. Uh, slow cooker, roast them. Supposedly it's not that bad. Uh, I'll probably have to season it a little bit and get used to it. But, uh, you know, I want to make, make sure I'm using all the animal that I can, uh, not just letting it go to waste. But, yeah, it'll be cool kind of off-season opportunity to go. It's always interesting when you lead off with it's supposed to be not that bad. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess I'm trying to sugarcoat it a little bit, but uh, no, it, it's a good opportunity, I think, for some off-season hunting uh, and taking care of some invasive species, so looking forward to that. Nice. Oh, another bit of news that uh, I forgot to mention, so we've just been out here a couple weeks, but we did break off from the big city, Denver here, and, and headed up to Breckenridge this last weekend and fished a couple of the alpine lakes up there, uh, caught a good mess of trout. Made a uh, trout miniere uh, last night, uh, which was pretty good. So if you don't know what that is, it's like floured and pan-fried uh, whole trout uh, that you basically uh, then drizzle a clarified butter and lemon and parsley sauce on top of, and then just kind of eat it off the bone. Man, it, it was it was phenomenal. Even uh, Zoe, my daughter, who's the the big critic of the house, uh, mowed through with a little help, mowed through her trout. Uh, uh, easier than expected, which was good. So uh, that's always exciting when that happens. Um, I think updates from others. Uh, Corey's dealing with a rainstorm right now. Otherwise, he would have been joining us. Um, ben is off traveling the world today uh, somewhere in the U.S. Uh, he'll be back next week, so hopefully we can get him back on for a crew chat, catch up with him. Uh, Ryan and Emily are down at Texas. Actually paid a visit to Daidue, um, supper club, if you recollect back a couple episodes ago, we had, uh, Jesse Griffiths on the show and, uh, they were actually down that way and stopped into the restaurant, uh, say hello and have a meal. So, uh, I got pictures of the meal. It looked incredible, uh, and pictures of the menu, which also looked awesome as well. So, uh, big shout out to Jesse and his, what did they have to eat? That's a good you know. question, Colin. Thanks for putting me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you'll just have to go to their page and find out for yourself. Yeah, yeah. No, I have the pictures on my phone. It's just uh, in correlating the recipe, and they didn't send gotcha. text as to what each dish was. All right. Um, but it all looked good from the pictures, so uh, I'm excited next time I'm down in Austin uh, to uh, visit. Um, so also I want to give a shout-out to our Adventures for Food podcast. If you roll back probably three or four, two, three, four episodes – you will find in Adventures for Food. So this is your opportunity as the guest and listener to hop onto the podcast and tell your story. So it's not hosted. It's only you on there uh, recording a favorite wild fish or wild game hunting uh, story of your choice. Uh, just kind of telling the adventure, what it was like for you, uh, much like a campfire story or sitting at the kitchen table having a beer with friends. Uh, it's a really cool podcast. Check that out. And then always our Facebook community page group where you can interact with us more on a day-to-day -day basis. And then if you're digging what we're doing, then you can always buy us a cup of coffee. There's a link down in the show notes to buy us a cup of coffee there. Three bucks goes a long way. Helps fuel those long nights of podcast editing, recipe writing, and uh, adventure planning. But speaking of Austin, our guest today is a resident uh, of Austin. And uh, I would like to introduce him. He is the co-founder and CEO at Force of Nature, a regeneratively sourced meat company 
He's also a land steward at the Rome Ranch, uh, regeneratively managing his own bison. And you can often find him on a trail, on the ocean, on a mountain, or in a field, always making time to appreciate nature and explore his surroundings. Uh, Welcome to the Wild Fish and Game podcast, Robbie Sansom. Hey, guys. I'm uh, happy to be here. Thanks for the warm welcome. I got I to gotta, I gotta say, that was a uh, quite a, a tasty question, tasty sandwich y'all made with that amazing-sounding gator dish, and then highly questionable nutria followed by <laughs> another trout meniere or whatever. I can't even say it. It sounded fantastic, but uh, I'll, I'm going to have to follow back up to hear about how that nutria tastes. Yeah, long-time listeners will know that I generally don't come up with the greatest, most delicious-sounding stuff. It's just kind of like off the wall, whatever. I think um, Justin said it best. When you when you qualified it with, uh, it's probably not going to be that great, but I'm going to eat it anyway. I can definitely respect, <laughs> I can respect the uh, uh, intention there, though, to honor the animal yeah. and, and, and you know make use of every aspect of it that you can. So um, joking aside, I, res- I absolutely respect that and appreciate you saying that. Oh, no. Thanks, I appreciate that. At the very least, it'll make a good Adventures for Food episode, I think. So, uh, stay tuned. <laughs> well, we got to start thinking of a quick, uh, a crafty title for that episode. <laughs> yeah, I'll get on that. I mean, even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't taste good, you just just have Justin make up some fancy name for it, and I'm sure it'll that spin will bring it home. Yeah. Nutria Minier. Yeah, something with a lot of alliteration or like a or like a French name to it. Yeah, make it sound go. way better That's than it. it actually is. <laughs> so, uh, Robbie, will you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, uh, what what you are involved in in the outdoor world as well? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think you guys already already got the part about being from from Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually born and raised here, so um, that's a, it's, it's exceedingly rare um, in these parts to to be a native. But um, yeah, lo- love being in Central Texas. Grew up um, running around the hill country, as as they they call uh, it in, in this area, and then you know heading down to the coast and getting uh, doing a, spending a lot of time inshore fishing in the flats, as we would call it, and a little bit of time offshore, and then as much as I can traveling around and getting in mountains and, and playing, whether that be wintertime or, or, uh, springtime, summertime. So, um, yeah, just like, like you read in that kind of brief bio, um, try to, unfortunately, professionally, I got to spend a lot of time in front of a computer, but, um, I try to balance that out with spending as much time out, out of doors as possible doing, uh, what I call adventuring, whatever that may be. Right. (laughs) It's good. Nice. Um, what was it? I, I always find it's like a common theme for people who really, really love the outdoors and like to be in it. And, you know, in our position where, you know, your nine to five or your normal job kind of keeps you inside. It's always the, uh, the common answer of, uh, how often do you spend in the outdoors? It's usually like as much time as I can, but it's usually not enough. Totally. <clears throat> So uh, for you, um, how did you get your start uh, in, in the farming and, and culinary world? Yeah, you know, my I kind of did the traditional um, schooling route, you know, went to undergrad and grad school, got a master's degree and, you know, all those sorts of things and did big consulting with big firms and, and, and all that. But kind of as we just started off the conversation with, you know, I grew up hunting and fishing, running around Texas. Mm -hmm. You know, I can, I can remember as a kid setting an alarm in the middle of the night when there's a full moon, grab my fishing pole and running down trying to throw topwaters and catch bass, you know, like, (laughs) um, and, um, you know, same thing, depending on the seasons, you know, whether it's a rifle or a rod, um, you run around doing those things and then, you know, gaining an appreciation for outdoors and conservation and recognizing that, these resources are, um, they're finite and they need to be managed and stewarded and, and, and cared for or, or we'll lose them. Um, and a, through, through, you know, I guess serendipity really, you know, reconnected with a couple of friends of mine, Katie Forrest, Taylor Collins, who had, you know, founded a company called Epic Provisions. Um, 
And yeah, I know of Epic. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I had been doing business consulting and then went in the startup world and had a really successful first four way into, into running um, startup, fast growth, mission based businesses. And, you know, we were, we were all doing um, triathlons and riding bikes and stuff like that. And they said, hey, we, we, we just launched this bar a few months ago. It's going bananas. We could really use some help kind of scaling this business, professionalizing it. We got some big goals. And, and so I joined the founding team there and the three of us ran that company and grew it. And um, we're, we're very fortunate that it was, it ended up being and still is extremely influential in the, in the meat-based agriculture space, right? But that was the first mm-hmm. time really in not just my career, but in my life where my passions collided with, um, and, and, you know, outside of work, right? My personal passions collided with my my job and my professional passions. I love running businesses. I love, it's just like the, the most fascinating puzzle imaginable, right? And you get to deal with people and hopefully make, improve their lives in the process, right? So, um, but yeah, when you're trying to figure out how to make um, healthy meat um, that honors values that consumers of today, um, you know, which are generally speaking welfare for animals and, you know, thoughtfulness around the communities that are producing food and, um, positive, um, you know, impacts on ecosystems and, and natural habitat. Um, you know, you can't, you can't help, but go deeply, quickly down a rabbit hole of agriculture and what, what challenges does our current agriculture system, um, Mm -hmm. promote, um, and what solutions are there for those? And fortunately, you know, contrary to the popular narrative, animals aren't evil and they were, they were put here for a reason and they perform key ecosystem services. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a way to celebrate that in our agriculture systems. And, you know, we're trying to champion that message and create awareness that, um, you know, with some subtle shifts, um, we can, we can improve the food that we eat. We can improve the environment that, um, that we enjoy and, and, and benefit from all the things that it gives to us symbiotically. And, um, improve the livelihoods of people in rural um, areas producing our food and get healthier, cleaner food and water as, as, all, as part of the process. And we don't have to do it by paying a bunch of engineers and PhDs to make intellectual property and channel money to more billionaires. So it's pretty cool. It's overall just kind of taking a, a better, more steady, uh, locally driven hand in, in agriculture and in the way we eat. Yeah, I mean, I think I think certainly trying to take a step back from the um, the you know, there's extremes. Pendulums always swing, right? Mm-hmm. And we're 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 way out on the extreme of a pendulum right now with our incredibly centralized, industrialized, commoditized agriculture system. It's so brittle, in fact, that not all you know. Recently, we saw it with. Those the, the the cyber attacks and a year ago we saw it with COVID where, you know, it doesn't take much to disrupt the entire supply chain of meat across the, the, the country. And even last year, it was more profound where, you know, there was excess supply and excess demand of animal protein simultaneously. And farmers were having to euthanize animals because they couldn't get them into processing because a couple of plants were down. Right. That's madness to us probably in this conversation and listening well because we know what to do and how to handle that right but our system has become so brittle and fragile in the name of hyper efficiency that it's lost the flexibility to 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 truly be stable um and and not only not only is the cost of that a lack of access for the average consumer but that's come on the backs of five thousand to ten thousand family-owned farms a year that lose their generational wealth and lose their ability to produce and we have globally a, a situation where farmer suicide is higher than the rate of suicide for veterans returning from war. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a plight. It's a tragedy what's happening. And these are the people that we want producing our food. Don't you want your neighbors producing your food families that have de- mm-hmm. dedicated their, um, their entire history and lineage to, to, to feeding, uh, proudly feeding us, um, you know, versus it being just some fortune 500, company or some an industry backed by a bunch of investors no i want i want people involved in my my food supply and i want them happy and i want them healthy and i want them part of um thriving communities you know mom 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So I, I'll, I'll say this. So uh, a lot of our listeners at this point in the conversation may be scratching their head going, hey, wait, this is a, a wild fishing game podcast. It's like you guys are talking about uh, agriculture pretty heavily at this point. And, and I want to preface this, this thing and say that, uh, you know, we wanted to talk with Robbie um, uh, about force of nature meats and about regenerative agriculture, you know, because we think it, it really goes hand in hand with hunting and fishing, like harvesting your own protein and, and really just wrapping your head around it and understanding where your food comes from and, and plugging back into, to the food system and, and understanding that. So that's kind of the, the overarching point of this conversation to bring it in. And, and I think several episodes ago, uh, someone had asked me my thoughts on agriculture and, you know, longtime listeners know, like I grew up, uh, in an agriculture family and, and I understand the value of it. And just as much as I value hunting, I value the farmers and ranchers too, as well. I mean, they play uh, a vital part in our economy, in our food supply in everything. And I, I think that those conversations should be had as well. You know, I love getting my protein from the wild. I like foraging as much as I can and as much as I've learned. But, you know, you still get vegetables from, from somewhere. You still, in a pinch, need to find food supplies uh, to complement whatever other protein you may have. So <clears throat> there's a definite importance in that. <clears throat> that's one of the main reasons we wanted to have Robbie on this evening. Well, Justin, I think that's, I mean, that's a great point. And I, I appreciate that that context for folks listening in and um, you know, I, I think, I think the scale of agriculture, it just bl- blows right over people's heads. I don't think they understand mm-hmm. most of the average person understands how much land you fly on a plane, you see it, but you probably think that that's just unique. It's a new, it's specific to that flight line, right? You look down and you see all the squares on the ground, but you know, the truth is the United States is only a couple billion acres and about half of that is currently being farmed. Right, that's a lot of land. When you, when when we're talking to in a community here, of folks that care about um, wildlife, right? Well, that wildlife needs a place to be. It needs a play, and it needs a certain setup within that system to be able to thrive and be healthy, and um, and to maintain its numbers for future generations. Ideally, even grow those numbers. Um, and if we can find a path where we can practice agriculture and feed our communities in a way that allows for wildlife and and lands to exist. And support our native um, animal communities as well. That's 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 the best of both worlds, right? Because then we get to then we get to have our cake and eat it too. The inverse of that is, um, you know, we have agriculture systems that are that continue to grow and take up wild wildlife, wild ecosystems, um, and and put monocultures in their place. And that's you know, um, you know, millions or, or or thousands of square miles of tilled up land with one species, and that's it, right? And you know, we, we, mm-hmm. we, we, there's a way to do that better for that farmer and a way to do that better for those ecosystems and those, and that wildlife to make sure we can have more and of both and, and, and better outcomes for both. And that includes Mate. folks that want to fish, right? You know, put, putting herbicide, pesticide, fungicide, fertilizer, all that stuff. Um, you know, the more of it we spray, the more it runs through and creates dead zones and algae blooms and, and all sorts of stuff. And again, if there's, a, we're doing it for a reason, we're trying to feed people, but if there's a better way without doing it that benefits everybody, we should be exploring it. And that's, that's the kind of path and awareness we're trying to create and travel down. And that's sort of, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, looking at regenerative agriculture, that's sort of the path and, and the model that that builds in, correct? Yeah, totally. I mean, that one of the in, in its simplest form, regenerative agriculture is is an effort to replace uh, inputs with with management, right? So, you know, I just listed off some chemical inputs, right? And then there's some mechanical disturbance that you can that you can maybe do in, in the form of heavy tillage and frequent tillage as well, um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and then we're replacing that with management, where 
you know, we're trying to figure out, hey, there's there's a few billion years of blueprints here and working with nature. Can we manage our land a little bit differently and figure out how we can mm-hmm. work with it instead of against it? And if in doing so, do we get some more positive, more, more positive outcomes, right? And that tends to be um, realized and, 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 and again, net positive outcomes, you know, environmentally speaking on, on lands that are managed in accordance with regenerative principles, um, but also favorable financial outcomes for those farmers and those, and those communities. Right. And, and then of course that passes through to consumers in the form of, you know, healthier, healthier, more, more abundant food. Um, in its simplest forms, there's there's a lot more nuance to it than that, but that's really what it what it boils down to is, hey, can we replace a, a system that sort of is engaged a little bit in ke- a chemical and mechanical warfare with nature, and replace it with one that wants to w- work symbiotically with it and, and and leave everybody better for it. And so this this uh, was kind of the path that you chose uh, in the, in the foundation of, of Force of Nature. Well, through that, through that journey with Epic, like I had mentioned a moment ago, we had, we had, you know, that was sort of what took us down the rabbit hole, right? We were saying, Hey, we want to, we want to create healthy, convenient meat that folks can take with them on whatever their adventure may be, whether it's a long bike ride or a hike or a hunting trip or out on a boat somewhere, you know, having a little one and a half ounce bar of bison or venison or some beef with you is nice to not have to have a cooler and a refrigerator and a, and a, and a, and a grill and a fire or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, we wanted to source healthy meat. So where's healthy that come from? It comes from healthy animals. Where do healthy animals come from? Well, they come from healthy land where they're allowed to exhibit their natural behaviors that they evolved, um, to exhibit and, um, and healthy land with healthy animals comes from healthy soil. Uh, and it turns out in our current agriculture system, we're doing a lot of stuff that's degrading our soil over time. It has short term gains and, you know, kind of helps mm-hmm. prop up and, and, and actually perpetuate itself. But long term, um, you know, we're seeing the need for more amendments and more and, and heavier applications and new chemicals and new um, innovations to continue to keep up with our, you know, historical yield levels as we as we continue to degrade a resource that is finite. Um, and that there, there's there's a tragic end if we continue to race to the bottom in that regard. Um, but there's a simple solution that actually you know, turns that ship around and we can start to improve that soil base and improve that land base and, and, and improve again, the, the environment as well as the food coming out of it. It's just, uh, it, it, it amazes me too, when you talk about the, the additive and the inputs and, and the various things going into the soil, it's just like that comes at a cost too, you know, whether it through labor or whether it through dollar for products or chemicals or whatever additives you're, you're putting in. And it's just, I don't know that a lot of people realize that, you know, the it's the farmer that bears the burden of that because the consumer oftentimes doesn't want the price to change. Uh, so then costs are cut in certain places where it's not always uh, the ideal thing. And you go back to happy farmers and happy lifestyles. Yeah. And, and, and then we're sort of trained, um, you know, like with many things, the what's real may not be how we're perceiving it. Right. You know, people... Mm-hmm. You know, meat is a good example. You know, if you ask somebody to pay an extra, you know, couple dollars a pound for some for some meat, that's um, it seems expensive, right? But the most premium meat that um, you know, our ground um, beef, for example, I think it's like fifty fifty cents an ounce. A Hershey's bar is ninety nine and a half cents an ounce. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever complains about Hershey's being expensive, but our meat is seen as real expensive because it's premium, right? And the difference is that you can survive on a on, on three or four ounces of our meat. It'll still give you a clo- twenty or thirty grams of protein and all the micro and macronutrients that you need. And you know, you could, such a great example, right? You think think of all these you think of the tragedy of all the, the, these folks in food deserts or in low income communities where they're they're eating meals in convenience stores, right? And they're getting mm-hmm. you know some crappy processed chips or crappy extra large soda and 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 some other garbage that's made to taste really good so you get addicted to it but offer you nothing except for maybe cancer on the side um and uh you know they're they're doing that because of what's available and what they can afford but the truth is a quarter you know quarter pound of ground meat will give you so much more than that at a lower cost we just we just don't see it that way we're just not trained to see it that way by um you know that just the, the, the way people look at and think about and talk about food and pricing 
being so, a, na a native of Hershey, Pennsylvania, uh, I, I do have to agree with you on the premium price of chocolate. Hershey's is not the greatest chocolate, but uh, you know, you, you get what you pay for. And well, and you have to. And I think that's an even better example, right? Because nobody bats them. Yeah. Yeah, you start you start getting into designer chocolate, and just you throw the book out on what what's expensive, right? right. And the same yeah. thing mm -hmm. you said for wine and olive oil. And vinegar, and you know, don't even think about looking at the price per pound for nuts, um, or those awesome mushrooms that you're probably foraging, Justin, getting mm -hmm. out of the wild. You know, you dry those things out, and I don't. It's just the, add a zero to whatever the average person thinks that's going to cost in bulk. So, um, yeah, we just, yeah. The, our perception of price and what's expensive or not expensive relative to what we truly need in our body, what nourishes our bodies, and what we what, what we need to survive on is really kind of a, a whole screwed up story in and of itself. And I think what you're saying about like, oh, if, if, if you have to add a couple dollars per pound for a uh, higher quality meat, then people are going to look at that as, well, maybe it's a deterrent for some people. Um, but in the end, then they go to the, they're going to go to the cheaper meat, which just ends up fueling the, like the big farm companies anyway. And it's just kind of like this endless cycle. And it's, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the solution is, and I don't know if you have a solution for it. Um, but that's just something I picked up on when, when you were talking about it there. Yeah, maybe, I, maybe I should talk a little bit in more detail about what what regenerative agriculture is, and maybe compare the yeah a, a, a couple of systems, if that's all right. Yeah, I like yeah, it. Go for it. Um, so the, the, the you know there's there's five principles that you're, that you're that you will hear talked about most often in regenerative agriculture, right? And the, the first one is um, and, and again, this is all context-based. These aren't rules, hard lines in the sand. These are practices where, you know, it's it's trying to coach in a direction and and guide guide an outcome, right? So, the first principle is limit chemical and mechanical disturbance. You know, I talked about the spraying of chemicals. We do all those things for a lot of reasons, but there are alternatives that can be just as, if not more, effective. Um, for you know, driving those same um, desirable outcomes that farmers spray for um, by, by not spraying, right? Um, and and um, mechanical disturbance, as I mentioned, would be you know heavy tillage, right? And and you know there's a, there's estimates that a third of the legacy carbon load in the atmosphere is the direct result of tilling over the last few generations on a global scale. And where, wherever you are on like the atmospheric carbon climate whatever conversation, at the end of the day we need is carbon in our soils because we're all carbon-based life and that's where it belongs. That's what creates mm -hmm. life coming from the soil. We need this carbon that's supposed to be in our soil back in our soil, not in the atmosphere. And the way that you do that is with, um, with plants on the ground. So that, that second principle is armor the soil. Um, leave, leave the ground covered. Um, leave it um, with, with the litter and thatch and mulch um, that natural organic matter would, would put on the, the land, right? That protects it from baking in the sun, right? You guys, we spend enough time in, in, in the outdoors community outside. You know when it's hot, it's real damn hot. And black mm -hmm. soil can get above 140 degrees, if not quite a bit above it. And if you think about, you know, Chef Justin over here with his food thermometers, what temperature is meat safe to eat? What, at what temperature are you killing pathogens and bacteria, Right. Um, yeah, not much lower than that. So you're, you're nuking no. the micro, the microbiome, the rhizosphere in your soil, the, the thing that gives all life, life, we destroy by letting it bake in the, in the sun. And inversely, the same thing can happen in the winter, but you, you put a layer of, um, ground cover on that and it retains moisture. It stays cooler in the summer. It stays warmer in the winter and, and it creates food, um, for, for microbiological life. So, um, you know, armoring the soil is really important as a second principle. The third principle is um, green growing plants year round, or, or, or some would say living roots. Um, that, that's key. I kind of touched on that a moment ago, but green leaves on grasses and plants and for all of it, right? That allows photosynthesis to occur. And what photosynthesis does is it takes carbon dioxide, CO2, out of the atmosphere um, and uh, pulls that into the plant. Um, the plant feeds on it, it grows, um, it drops sugar deposits into the soil, which feeds soil life. It gets deeper, deeper roots. Those roots get further, further, allow water to permeate, and then it spits out oxygen for us to breathe, leaving that carbon behind. Um, and that carbon creates more and more life and more and more vitality uh, in that soil. 
Um, and, and, and so again, that's carbon drawdown, that's creation of oxygen, um, and it's more armor on the soil. It's, um, and it allows for more uh, water infiltration, right? Those, those tap roots going down the ground allow water to come down. So now we're getting into these interesting drought conversations, right? You know, we, we live in a world now where we're constantly, everything, everybody's constantly in a drought or they're flooding. Um, and, and, and the, in, in agriculture, you know, the way you survive through a period of drought, uh, of drought is having water on the side. And the best way to have water on the side is to have it permeating into your soil and stored there so that, you know, the periods of abundance, you're getting effective use of rain and it actually absorbs into the ground instead of running off, causing a flood. Um, and then in those periods of drought, you're tapping into that. Your water, your rain didn't run off. Your rain absorbed. Most land, uh, at agriculture land in, in the U.S. Um, is no longer effectively capturing rain, which is why we're seeing more, more floods. And then the bigger toll and a greater cost during droughts. Um, so again, leaving, leaving green plants growing year-round. Um, and then not, of course, you know, like, like that first principle, not tilling, emitting, emitting carbon up and promoting all these issues. The last two principles kind of relate the fourth one is uh, diversity. Um, different plants of different shapes and sizes are, you know, do different things during different seasons. Some actually fix nitrogen, veggies and clovers and things like turnips, um, which can be cash crops. You no longer need to spray chemical synthetic nitrogen as a fertilizer if, you have, if you're planting things that are pulling nitrogen out of the atmosphere. Let's be honest, I think upwards of 70% of the atmosphere is nitrogen. Why are we buying mm-hmm. this stuff if we can plant something, protect our soil, honor these principles, and get you know hundreds of dollars per um, you know um, acre worth of nitrogen for free, um, while making our soil resource even better. And the last one is animal impact. Right, we live in a continent that was the that was the, the benefited from um, the the original soil builders, which were the bison. Right, this is the largest herd of mega uh, herd of megafauna since the last ice age. They used to roam from Mexico to Canada in numbers between forty and sixty million, maybe more. Um, doing incredible things, you know, helping honor these principles of regenerative agriculture through, through their hoof impact, pounding down dead and decaying, oxidizing organic matter and grasses. So they're at the surface level, giving that layer of thatch, holding in moisture and making it accessible for um, breakdown and decay, um, biting grass um, along the way, unselectively grazing it, which causes it to... Um, you know, a, a chain reaction that feeds soil life, um, urinating, which gives it water during seasons of, of, of drought, defecating, which is giving it more biology and, and literally fertilizer as they as, as they move on and don't come back for months at a time. Right. I mean, this is one of the they call it a keystone species because it is dis, it has a disproportionate impact even to its numbers on an ecosystem. Um, and we no longer can do that. Right. We don't we don't have those bison um, roaming any longer. So. This is where agriculture comes into play. You know, we've 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 put out dam- a lot of dams. There's a lot of fences. There's private property rights. There's public property rights. How do we recognize that these things in nature that we've been dependent on and and had created fertility in our systems that we've been mining um, created a finite resource and then emulate or as best as we can mimic those things in the way we manage um, our lands and practice agriculture. So managing cattle in a way that would be symbolic of how those bison might have moved across your own land, right? Letting them, doing planned holistic grazing, letting them rotate, not come back to the same area, being a little, you know, for, for months at a time, being a little more dense in those rotations, managing them in that way, right? Remember, like we talked about replacing management um, in place of inputs um, in, in, in a farming context, right? Not spraying um, pesticides, right? Pesticides unselectively kill insects, right? They kill the pollinators that you need, um, to pollinate Mm -hmm. your crops. In many cases, you have more incidences of undesirable pests after spraying than you do if you hadn't have sprayed at all. And you unselectively kill all positive, um, um, insects as well, right? Every acre has something like a billion favorable insects that do important things Mm -hmm. that will make your land better and crop better. But if we if we spray, you know, we, we lose the the benefit of that of that service, and so you know all of these sorts of things, um, you know, up to and including we talked about you know the community and the impact on the farmer, right? Not handling toxic chemicals um, is, is is pretty beneficial for an individual, but um, having having stacked revenue streams where in, instead of tilling and having fallow fields, you're producing more food per acre, so you're able to feed more people and you're able to generate more revenue for doing it. Right. I mean, and, and at the end of the day, again, you're creating habitat for wildlife. 
You're creating habitat for insects. You're improving your soil base. Again, it's 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 almost ridiculous how much of a win 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 win. I mean, just keep going down the line. Everybody's mm-hmm. winning, um, with the exception of some really large um, industrial complexes selling chemicals or um, uh, petroleum or, or or some other stuff, right? Who really want to make sure that we continue to be reliant on a system that's sort of um, taking a toll on on the rest of us. Man. It's a, it's a very thorough, good explanation. Um, I think, I think I've wrapped my head around it, Colin. Yeah, I, I have a question actually about it. I, I recently learned about um, cover crops the, a few months ago. I was driving through like Central Oregon, and uh, was wondering what all the red and white flowers covering the farm fields were. And so I looked it up and you know, realized that it was uh, crimson clover and white clover. And realize what they do for the soil and the nitrogen and why they have it. But I guess my question for the outside observer, somebody who doesn't know a lot about regenerative agriculture and is listening to the to the show here, is there a way to tell just driving through the countryside, be like, oh, that's a regenerative agriculture farm, or is there not really any way to tell? Like, which ones should I, you know, cheer on, and which ones should I, uh, you know, curse under my breath as I'm driving by? I think the answer is a little bit a little bit yes and no. Um, it, it, the, the 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 no part of the answer is it's it's hard to tell just by looking at anything at a at a specific moment in time what what really is going on and what the story is there. Okay. Um, and even a, a farm that could could be maybe they were conventional last year. Um, and they are converting their practices and they're early on in their journey. You know, they're not going to be, they're not going to have the garden of Eden look that maybe some of the more, you know, folks that have been doing this for 20 years and have just got it all figured out might. Right. Um, so I wouldn't, and, and frankly, I would, there's nobody that I would want to curse. Right. I mean, everybody's trying to do the best they can. I <laughs> yeah, think yeah. we're trying to, we're trying I to said get that in chest. there. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, I know, right. I know, but, in, but, yeah. but, but in all, you know, I think everybody's trying to do, try, try you know, they're all part of a system and, and a community that is, you know, in some cases folks are telling, you know, perpetuating the status quo and convinced of it. But, you know, I think with more awareness and more and, 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 and more empirical research, which we're seeing more and more of, it's going to become obvious which, what the solution is and what the direction to go is. So I just don't want to vilify anybody that's, try, that's struggling, quite, quite frankly. But um, right. And, 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 and tragically, even it's actually through a lot of that struggle that we're seeing more and more folks do regenerative agri or, or move into it. Right. They're maybe a fifth generation farmer. Who's like, I can't pay my bills. I'm in more debt every year and I got to keep buying. I got to, now I got to up my chemical load and I lost one more crop, you know, and the insurance bill came in and didn't quite cover my needs. And I got two choices, you know, sell my family's legacy or try something crazy. Um, and usually that yeah. something crazy is regenerative agriculture. But, you know, some of the things you might see if, if it was obvious on the land was you'd never see bare ground. You know, you wouldn't drive down the highway and see miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of exposed soil. Because um, somebody that is, is, is wanting to transition and practice regenerative agriculture would recognize that that might be one of the worst things for their land that they could do. Um, and it would be, it'd be harmful to themselves and it would be harmful to... Um, the, the ecosystem that um, and, and, the, and wildlife, which which they desperately would want, um, so that'd be that'd be a quick red flag. And then another one would be, um, you know, how many species of plants do you see growing? You know, you mentioned cover cropping. That was probably as much intercropping as anything else, right? They they were. I mean, that's you're looking at hundreds of dollars per acre is the cost to spray nitrogen. I don't know how many acres of that vetch and clover you saw, but think about how much money that person is saving by having that stuff there and drawing carbon down and getting more rainfall capture and, and, and all that kind of stuff, right? So that is a sign of somebody that's starting to do that starting to do some of the principles, as would somebody that has a tall crop of corn and and then maybe some some you know cover cro- or intercrops in between or whatever. So um, you'll you'll probably see some interesting things on agriculture lands. You, you'll look at fence lines. Um, that's always a telltale sign. Somebody doing regenerative, their soil will probably have several inches more height to it. You know, you'd, you'd essentially be like walking down a step um, because of erosion. You know, when, you, when you're leaving the ground mm-hmm. armored and you're leaving plants on it with roots in it, your soil is not eroding away in the wind or in the rain. The EPA lists soil as the number one pollutant in the U.S. water supply. 
that's the rate at which we we'll wow. get soil. And soil is this Jeez. tiny layer of skin that wraps the globe that all life, all terrestrial life depends on. You know what I mean? And it takes 500 plus years for nature to make an inch of topsoil. And we're just running that shit off. Sorry for the language, but that's okay. it is it is sacred. I mean, like that should be yeah. that should be a, a, a federal crime to allow soil to erode because it compromises everything, right? So you might you might see that. And the other thing you see in these fence line photos is on one side of the fence looks a little sad, a little lackluster. And on the other side of the fence, it looks lush and thriving, right? And that's usually the benefit of, you know, a few years of proper management where the system is, is much stronger, much more resilient through a variety of, you know, any, any type of stress you might throw. Again, drought, flood, heat, cold, you know, these systems aren't perfect, but they're more resilient. They're better at adapting and handling that sort of stuff. So I think the, the real question though, Colin, or maybe the real response is um, what, what can a consumer do or what can a person do? Right. And I think step, you know, step one is starting to pay attention a little bit more and recognize that these issues do exist. And then step two is when you're buying stuff, whether it's food or anything else, when you're, when you're buying something, there's always a story behind it, you know, and you don't get to sitting like a presidential election where you don't like either candidate and you throw your hands up or, or whatever it may be, you just say, I'm out. You know, when you can, when you buy something, you're making a vote. You are, you are actively mm -hmm. complicit and aligning with and supporting something that is consistent with your values or not. It's one or the other, right? You're supporting something against your own values. Or you're supporting something in alignment with your values. You choose, right? Um, and so maybe, you know, asking a few questions and getting to know the brands that you support, what do they stand for? What are they doing? Um, you know, is this, is this, is this something that I want to, I want to, I want to give my dollars to perpetuating and continuing, or would I want to direct those someplace else that stands for something more important to me? And I'm not here to tell anybody what they should and shouldn't do and what they should believe in, right? I'm here to let folks know what's real and what's happening out there so that they can have that opportunity to make that conscious decision for them. Yeah, no, I think you put that in a good perspective about uh, like people's principles and um, you, you're making a vote with what you're buying. You know, it's not just, uh, I mean, you're not like casting a ballot or anything like that, but I mean, your, your dollars are going towards something. They, people record sales. They see what kind of influence they have over the market and more people who buy a certain product. And I think that's absolutely true. I think that's a really good point to bring up is that. I love, more, I love that you use attention. that analogy. I love that you use that analogy. It's like something I, I, I talk to my wife about all the time. She's like, oh, you know, what about this place? And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I'm, I don't care for that place. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to spend my money. I'm not going to vote for them. I'm not going to, you know, invest in that. Like, I'd rather, just as you said, I want to support the brands that, that yeah. I believe in that have similar morals and values and align with the way I see my life going and, you know, the life of my kids and all the other things. It's like buying wild-caught salmon. I mean, if you're going to the store to buy meat and stuff, buying wild-caught salmon versus the farm-raised stuff. You know, it's, you know, oh, man. Both there. We, we had a conversation the other day. So in moving to Colorado, like, the availability of fresh seafood uh, is not the same as it is in Key West. And uh, <laughs> we, were, we were strolling through the store the other day, and we had this exact conversation. And I was like, look, like, you know, my, my wife didn't always know that I, I – only <clears throat> if I do buy seafood, I generally always, always, always buy wild caught. And I'm very particular about what countries of origin I buy it from. U.S. is always first, but if not U.S., I'm very selective in what I buy. And it's just like there's just some countries that I don't agree with their their uh, their fishing industries and their fishing practices. So I won't I won't support it. And I don't care if they're you know if I have to spend a difference of twenty five or thirty dollars. Uh, in my purchase, it doesn't matter. Like, uh, one, the flavor's better. Two, I'm not gonna go and support something that I know is doing purposeful harm to the earth. Like, that's well, it. And I think I think yep, an on interesting. The, on the same way, I was raised the same way. Yeah, go ahead, Robbie. No, no, it's t t totally. I, I think that's awesome. Those those are great examples, and I think you know, I I I would I would expand on that and say, you know, it's what's interesting to me is that folks will do that. And then when they're buying their dog food, say, oh, well, my dog doesn't need nice, nice stuff, too. And it's like, well, it's not just about <laughs> what you're giving your dog. It's, again, are you, are you just canceling out your own consumption by supporting, a, by continuing to support a system that 
you know, again, doesn't stand for your values, right? So, so it's more to it, right? And it's not, and then and 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 even beyond that, right? It's you know, don't there, there's a there's a family farmer nearby that needs that needs your support that's getting squeezed off their land. So whether you're 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 buying it for your 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 pet food company that you're supporting or your the food company that you're supporting for yourself or the clothing company that you buy or the seafood that you buy, right? And, you know, you, you always have an opportunity to stand for something. Um, and not everybody can, not everybody has the ability to do that all the time and not everywhere you go. But when you have, oh, yeah. when you have that chance and when you can afford it and when it's, you know, you have access to something, um, you know, I, I think, I, I know I know what I do with those opportunities, and I would encourage folks to just be a little bit more conscious, a little bit a bit more present about, you know, making sure that they're proud of what they're doing and that they're standing up for the things that they believe in. At, at all, at yep. every opportunity. And I, I think that that allows us to tie it back in towards uh, towards hunting and angling. Um, <laughs> great, hunting, great transition there. <laughs> <laughs> as uh, as hunters and anglers, you know, we want to be good stewards of the land, conservation, sustainability. Like these, all these practices are aligning. Uh, you know, you do the same thing in the outdoor industry when you're buying equipment. Like you want something that's dependable, but you also want to get from a company that you know is supporting what you're doing and you know involved in conservation and a lot of the same things. And it's. It, it, it all follows full circle, and I think it helps to stay as a, a well-rounded individual in that instance. Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, it's, what's interesting for me in, 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 you know, bringing it back to hunting and fishing is, you know, there's no, there's no doubt that the best way to procure your food is to get out on in some wild land and go spend mm-hmm. hours, if not days, really interacting with the environment and informing that sort of bond and relationship with not just nature, but even your, even your, your game and, and the animal you eventually kill. And, um, you know, that, that it, it, it becomes nourishment to feed you, your family and your friends and your community. Right. I mean, you can't for anybody that, for somebody that's never experienced that it's hard to convey until they have their first moment, but there's nothing more human. Um, no. and that, right. And the same could be said for foraging, um, and, 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 and other parts of your food. Right. And, and that, that is not available to everybody all the time. And I would say nope. the next best way to get your food is, um, to find the, the, the farmer or rancher down the road who you can go, you know, to kind of to Colin's question, you can go validate what they're doing, you know, are they honoring those principles of regenerative agriculture? What do they stand for? What is their why? You know, do they care about the end consumer? Do they care about their land? Do they care about conservation? Do they did they did they bring bees in and put a poll- put pollinators in because they know it it's needed? You know, they have they have owls. You have habitat. You know, what are, what are they doing, right? You know, um, and you know, vetting them out that they're that they're you know somebody that's conscious about th- their practices and they're managing and stewarding the land and adding value not just to the food but to the land base and and buying it from your neighbor. That's also not available to everybody, right? And I think what we're trying to do with Force of Nature is be the next best thing um, to, to getting mm-hmm. it from the wild or getting it from truly your neighbor. I mean, being available at a national scale with a brand that is familiar, that you can trust, that offers a variety of proteins, and we sell it in retail as well as online direct to consumer, you know, and and. and and we do a lot of stuff like this podcast and we do, we put out a lot of content mm-hmm. on our and blogs on our webpage and we're active on, on Instagram and social media, trying to tell the story of food and trying to, you know, bring people into a, a much bigger, it's a, it's a very broad and deep conversation, right? But there's some little tie in for everybody, um, to, to, you know, to get their attention and to, to engage them in it. And, you know, we want, we want to create that awareness and then make sure that folks have access. So should they, agree with us they have that opportunity to you know cast a better vote with their next purchase and so um, i'm right there with you i mean that's that's how my my my, my values came to be it was through hunting through fishing through getting on the land and seeing just how special that is and and and, and recognizing you know that when you kill an animal and you take a life i mean you you guys feel it it's it's bittersweet mm-hmm. you know it's like it's the, it's the epic culmination of everything that you hoped and dreamed of with a little bit of sorrow and a little bit of sadness that it's over and that there's a sacrifice and that something died for you. But man, that makes you appreciate it that much more and 
kind of like Colin talking about his nutria. You know what I mean? When you take something's life, you you respect the hell out of it. You don't let any of it go to waste, right? And I think we live in a country where 40% of food goes in the garbage can. And what greater tragedy? I mean, could you imagine you go out and you go on an epic elk hunt and then just the first thing you do is chunk 40% of it in the, in the garbage? Like never. Not a million years. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so just having that appreciation and respect for food is... I think really, really important. And we're trying to foster that connection, right? Connect people to the, to their food, to the animals, to the farmers, to the land, um, and let us be a little bit more human and a little bit less veiled um, and shielded yeah. from the truth. I, I think that's such a, it's such an important thing too, is, is to, and being open and welcome about the conversation and, you know, the use of social media these days is, is it's much easier to do that, to, you know, we look at back 20, 30 years ago, like you and I having this conversation, how possible would that have been? I would have had to travel down there. You would have had to travel up here. Like we would have had to work it out. But, you know, through the use of technology and things like Instagram and Facebook, we're able to, to open up the eyes of, of the public and of individuals who want to, to change and want to find different habits in eating, who want to hunt and fish and learn and, you know, participate in regenerative agriculture to know their local farmer and i think those those moments are very very special and you know i i i say thanks to you for you know for fostering that that type of uh ideal and for for this conversation well i definitely appreciate that um it's a uh, you know taking on conventional food and big big agriculture and big big chemical <laughs> isn't isn't is, is is no small fight but you know, I, I truly, genuinely believe that um, um, this is what consumers want. You know, and I think, and mm-hmm. I think um, the truth is, consumers are in control. You know, nobody's going to produce yeah. anything that a consumer doesn't want or doesn't buy. And I think the more access to more information, the better they understand the story and the power that they wield. Um, the 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 more we'll see um, what's available change and 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 the consequences and the externalities of the food system be improved because um, consumers start to um, you know choose a little bit differently um, that doesn't happen without without folks like you letting us tell the story so I appreciate you guys as well <laughs> absolutely so I want to shift a little bit to uh, well I've got a, a few minutes here left to chat to to chat a little bit about Rome Ranch and uh, some of your bison there. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of bison. You touched on it earlier, but bison meat is probably one of my favorites. It's up there with the the majority of wild game. Um, but uh, I know you do have some recipes on your website too, which I'll just mention real quick. We don't have to talk in depth about them because uh, I want to kind of hear more about Rome Ranch. Um, but uh, bison tenderloin with some holiday cranberry glaze, bison Salisbury steaks and mushroom gravy. Like those all sound great. Um, do you find that, uh, most, for those that don't know, do you find it comparable to beef? Uh, when you look at it, the way it falls, as far as like looking at domestically raised beef and wild game, like where does it fall in the spectrum? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. I don't even think beef compares to beef. You know, I think we got this weird, mm. it's one more of those weird paradigms where we have this <laughs> super homogenized look at everything, right? Think about all the different breeds yep. of cattle and all the different environments. You know, we were starting before the call talking about bear and, you know, you know, one of the, we, not just, not just bear, but bear that's been eating blueberries. You know, we, we all, we've all heard the, the, the urban legend, right? So like, I want to try that, you know, and um, and I think that there's so much uniqueness to a geography and a diet and a, and a, and a seasonality of food. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the, you know, the bison kind of like the classic red meat, like a beef. Sure. You know, I think you see a lot more intermuscular fat in, in today's mm-hmm. farm beefs. They've been bred that way. Right. I mean, if you think about what mm-hmm. beef is, it's not what, what cows are. They're not a real native animal. They've been bred to be to grow really fast on really cheap food, produce intermuscular fat and be lazy and sedentary. So they get bigger, faster and more tender. Um, and I think that, you know, I like beef. I'm not, I'm not knocking beef. Right. But when you compare what a bison is in, in, in its current form today, it's a wild animal. It's the second far, fastest land mammal in North America. It's cunning and beautiful. And, um, it's, it, it's definitely not sedentary. Um, Mm-mm. and they eat a diverse diet but yeah I, I think um 
they are you know have that rich richness and earthiness of of uh, of beef maybe um depending on the time of year you get them with some of those sweet notes um as well but i i might compare it more to like um like a like the midpoint between an elk and a and a and a, and a modern like grass-fed cow okay yeah i could i see that as a yeah, yeah. that's pretty solid comparison yeah and i love i love elk <laughs> It's phenomenal. I'm so excited. Yeah. September. You should do a you should do a taste test. You should grab we, we sell elk, we sell venison, uh wild boar, pork, bison, beef. Uh, oh yeah. But I'll tell you what, like our wild boar I, I think is better than any pork, you know, and I think I'd put um that elk and that bison up against any beef. Um it's just good. It's really good. I, Bobby, yeah, I do you deliver? Taste. <laughs> yeah. Or like, do you like do you ship? Not deliver. I'm not expecting you to drive it. <laughs> like, do you ship? I will, I will personally come drive it to to your home. Call. No. We, uh, if you go to our website at uh, forceofnature.com and our shop page, and you place an order, yeah, we will deliver it to your door. Awesome. Yeah, check that's that out right cool. after this. <laughs> I I think a, I think a taste test is definitely in order. Um, it'd be a good. Uh, a good narrative piece for sure. I, I think one of the things I was getting at though is that you know that wild boar versus the, the pork is really um, one of the things, right? If you think it, it, wild wild feral pig is just domesticated pig gone wild, you know. I think as Jesse mm-hmm. probably said on your show, it was on the wrong side of fence, yep. right? He loves to say that. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, but but the, but it, but it tastes markedly different, right? Because it's been allowed to run. It's healthy. It's expressing. It's Mm-hmm. natural behaviors it's eating a diverse diet it's um it's going to be leaner but you get that but the meat is what tastes good i mean fat is most popular but you get so much more depth of character and flavor in the meat um which is why we all love elk so much right um that's mm-hmm. fat can be critically important but it can also just be a shortcut to make up for crappy taste in meat um, oh yeah 100 so but i mean biologically the way it works yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah right so so yeah you know like the those those more wild um you know animals like that bison it's just i love that flavor profile uh, a lot the the complexity are there and i i appreciate too you mentioned it when you were talking about the the shifts in the season and the the changes you know you're, you're looking at an animal that's not eating a standard diet uh you know a more controlled a controlled diet it's more variable as you mentioned so therefore throughout the year as they're eating different things as plants mature and die off and the seasons change you're getting different flavors from whatever they're eating and i think for me personally that is what draws me most to wild game is the fact that it's a direct representation of the environment that it lives in isn't that amazing though i mean isn't that it's something that we always appreciate right if it was wine mm-hmm. we'd be heralding those differences and noting the unique characteristics of it right if it was no oh, yeah hell, if it was scotch we'd be celebrating how much it tastes like a fresh rain on 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 asphalt or pencil lead or what you know they <laughs> come up with these outrageous things to to describe this stuff that doesn't even sound appetizing and yet it becomes celebrated but you know, meat, if it doesn't taste exactly like some homogenized specific thing, then it's gamey or something else. It's like, no, there's so much more to it. I think I think red wine has something like 375 different, you know, flavor notes in it. And red meat has, like, you know, the next closest thing. There's really nothing else that compares in our culinary world to red meat and wine in terms of the amount of different flavors that you can that you can generate out of it. Right. And I wish we had a greater appreciation for meat in the same way that we do with some of those other things. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think uh, a side-by-side taste test would go really well with that kind of concept because, I mean, people go to people go to wineries and get a flight, or I guess they call it a tasting if you're classy, um, <laughs> or but or they'll go to breweries and get a flight, or they'll go to a, a distillery and get a, like a flight of whiskey, like we were talking about scotch, and then you can get the pencil lead one, then you can get like the seawater one. <laughs> And uh, you can just, I mean, you can taste the differences between them. I think that'd be, that's a really cool idea to do that with red meat. And I mean, I don't know if you can do it down there. If someday Justin opens up a a brick and mortar restaurant, maybe he can do that too. But have like a, 
like a side-by-side -side tasting, like the, the sampler platter where you can see, you know, how the flavor changes across elk to deer to bison or even elk from you know, western Oregon on the western side of the Cascades versus Rocky Mountain elk in the east, uh, you know, just different flavor profiles like that. I think that'd be a really cool idea. I totally agree. Yeah. That's awesome. It's a good idea. Right. And now it's stuck in my head. It's going to have to happen. I'm keeping but, notes. Uh, Don't worry, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, unfortunately, I think, I think we've reached the, the end of, uh, the end of the time here. Um, Colin, do you have any last questions for Robbie? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think, I think he answered just, yeah, every question that I had, he answered, um, it was really informative. I don't know a lot about regenerative ag agriculture to begin with. You know, I've heard the term before. Um, I had like a general concept, but you know, listening to Robbie talk about it and sit down and, and talk about it, like its benefits and and how it can help just the general environment with the world that we're in today, I think that's really cool. Uh, I'm really glad that you got to come on and talk about it on the show. Well, I I appreciate you guys having me. Like I said, can't um, can't thank you enough for letting me letting me share my, my, my thoughts and help tell the story of food. And, um, for any, for you guys, I want to learn more, any, any listeners, um, you know, forceofnature.com is our website and, and mm -hmm. at force of nature meets is our Instagram handle. Um, and we pretty much do nothing but put information out, um, on, on this sort of stuff. Right. And so I might encourage, um, anybody to, to go check us out and, and try to educate yourselves. I'm not going to ask you to buy anything. I'm just going to say, just do like we talked, we spoke about a minute ago, right? Try to be a little more conscious, a little more present and get a better sense of what, um, what system you're supporting. And if you're out hunting an elk and you you can get that first choice for the best way to, to harvest your meat. Great. And if you have a, an amazing regenerative rancher right next door to you, support them. Absolutely. And, and if not, you'll consider, consider if what we're doing inspires you and aligns with the, the sort of system you want to be a part of, then, then, um, we'd love to, we'd love to have you as a customer. So, um, thanks you guys. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think one thing that comes to mind is, uh, I, I graduated, graduated high school years and years ago, but, a, a good family friend told me, he said, you know, go off to college, learn and listen and, and take in everything you can because education is the one thing that nobody can take away from you. And it's always resonated with me. Yeah. So I definitely, with that, encourage, encourage everyone listening to go check out, uh, check out the Instagram and website and, and get some knowledge and, uh, you know, make, make a decision. Uh, we're not telling you what you're doing right uh, or w what you're doing is right or what you're doing is wrong. It's the opportunity to make your own decision. So uh, I think that's that's a key takeaway in my mind. But uh, thanks again, Robbie, for coming on. It was really awesome having you. Um, I would like to thank everyone out there for listening. Uh, as always, the show notes uh, will be online. You'll get links to all these great things, recipes I mentioned, uh, links to Force of Nature, all those great things. And, uh, and once you're done checking out Force of Nature, head over, make sure you're following us on the Harvesting Nature page. And then uh, whatever podcast platform you're listening to, punch that five-star button. Tell us what we're doing right, or you can tell us what we're doing wrong. Uh, we just love the feedback. So anyway, thanks, everybody. Have a good night.